This morning we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's a letter about true spirituality. And back at the beginning when we started this, we said that true spirituality contrasts with what we might call silent disco spirituality. In a silent disco, people gather in one place, but each person is wearing headphones and they're listening to their own playlist. Each person is having their own bespoke experience. And we said a lot of spirituality is like that. Each person creates their own form of spirituality. And therefore, any unity they may have with other spiritual explorers is a pretty superficial unity. They're all dancing to different tunes. But in contrast to that, In this letter, Paul has presented us with the one and only foundation for true spirituality. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, who died to reconcile us to God. What Paul has shown us is that God himself decides how we connect with him. God decides what constitutes authentic spirituality. And God has made his son, Jesus, the key. There is no true spirituality without faith in Jesus and his work. And when we come and put our faith in Jesus, we find ourselves in genuine community with all those who belong to Jesus. Unlike people at a silent disco, in the church our unity is deep. And then having explained the foundations of true spirituality, Paul has shown us how true spirituality works out in practice in this letter, how it works out in our daily lives. He's painted us a picture of new life in Christ. It involves a new orientation for our life. Our minds and our hearts are set on Christ and his rule over all. New life in Christ also involves developing our new character, putting off old sinful ways of life and putting on new godly ways of life, ways of life that reflect something of God's own character, God's image. And last time before Christmas, Paul gave us some specific examples of that of how that works out in our daily relationships and responsibilities. He used the examples of wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And he did that not to tell us those were the only relationships and responsibilities where new life is to work its way out. No, those were illustrations. And now, as Paul brings this letter to a close, He has more to say about new life in Christ. Paul closes this letter with the message that we need to talk. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 2, and we'll read to the end of the letter in verse 18. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1184, or in the larger print Bibles, 1832. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. 
And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. And it tells us we need to talk persistently to God. We need to talk carefully to outsiders. And we need to talk affectionately to each other. Now, Scripture as a whole has lots of teaching about our words, and one of its main emphases is the need to be careful with our words, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. That is in the background here, and it comes to the fore in the second point that Paul makes. But to begin with, Paul mentions one context where we are not to be slow to speak. That context is prayer. When it comes to prayer, we need to talk persistently to God about our lives and the spread of the gospel. Look again at verse 2. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. This is a call to make prayer a non-negotiable part of our lives part of the daily rhythm of our lives. And Paul gives us some direction here about the content of our prayers. 
I think being watchful applies to our daily lives. In the previous parts of the letter, Paul has spent considerable time on our daily lives. He's spoken about where our focus should be, the kind of behavior we're to put off, the kind of behavior we're to put on. And one way to make sure we are being watchful about all that is to consistently talk to God about it. Coming to him and mentioning our dilemmas to him. Mentioning our temptations, our failures. Mentioning our successes to him as well. Making sure that our successes don't turn into failures by making us arrogant and conceited. When it comes to talking to God, we are not to be slow to speak. Maybe one of the reasons we tend to find prayer difficult is because we think we need to use a special language when we talk to God, or that we need to be in a quiet place with no distractions. And we certainly do need some time in a quiet place We need time to reflect on our lives unhurriedly in God's presence. Jesus found time for that, and we need to as well. But we mustn't think the rest of our day is dead when it comes to being able to pray. We can pray on the go throughout the day. Talking to God about what we're doing while we're doing it. As we feel a a rotten mood coming over us, maybe. We can ask God in that moment to help us refuse to give in to that mood. As we start to feel a temptation pulling us. Again, we can ask God to help us as we turn away from that temptation. In every situation, we can stay watchful through an ongoing conversation with God. God hears our desperate two and three word prayers just as well as he hears our long and eloquent prayers. We can pray two and three word prayers even while we're having a conversation with someone else. Asking God for immediate help with that conversation. We're about to start a new year. And so why not make this something you commit to this year? Living a watchful life by bringing prayer into all of your life. Both times for slower, quiet prayer as we think things through, asking God to guide our thinking and lead our thoughts in a wise direction. And then the rest of the time, Let's enter into conversation with God throughout the day. As I said, we don't even have to pause to compose those kind of prayers. We can just blurt them out silently as we go, knowing that he hears us. When Paul talks about being devoted to prayer, we're not being called to do nothing else except pray. We're being called to make prayer part of everything else. In verse 2, still in the context of prayer, Paul mentions being thankful. This came up several times earlier in this letter as well. 
It's very important to Paul. And again, surely this involves both taking the time to count our blessings and give thanks for them, especially the blessings of forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation with God through Christ. Those are things to give thanks for all the time. Being thankful in prayer will involve that kind of slow and thoughtful reflection. And also it involves the kind of prayer we were talking about a moment ago. On-the-go thankfulness. Where we learn the habit of noticing and saying thank you to God for the little blessings of the day. Training ourselves to notice and mention those little blessings. That is a great antidote to grumpiness and gloominess. And then having called us to watchfulness and thankfulness in all the details of life, now Paul flags up something that is to be a major focus for our prayer. The spread of the good news about Jesus, the gospel. Look at that in verse 3. Paul says, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Everything can be the subject for our prayers, and the main focus of our prayers will be what is most important to God. And that is the message of Christ. God's agenda is for that message to bear fruit and grow throughout the whole world. And so, as men and women who belong to God through faith in Christ, as men and women who love God, the main emphasis of our prayers will be what God wants. God's will. And his will is that the message of Christ would spread and be fruitful in people's lives. In verse 3, you'll notice Paul also mentions that he is in chains. He's a prisoner. And the very last verse of the letter, in verse 18, he says to the Colossians, Remember my chains when you pray for me. Can you also bear my situation in mind, he's saying? Paul was not a fan of being in chains. He was not made of stone. He appreciates prayers for help in his unpleasant circumstances like we all do. But you'll notice Paul's main prayer request is for the spread of the message of Christ and its fruitfulness in people's lives. Notice how Paul breaks it down. To begin with, he wants prayer that God would open a door for the message. In other words, he wants opportunities to share the message. Of course, we can start proclaiming the message at any time in any place. But Paul is asking for genuine openings. He wants situations where the people in front of him are ready to hear and receive the message. And then in verse 4, he wants the ability to proclaim the message clearly. We might be confused by that because in verse 3, Paul referred to his message as the mystery of Christ. Surely, 
mysteries are mysterious? Well, normally, yes, but we've noticed before in this letter, in the New Testament, mystery almost always refers to something that was unclear in the past, but has now been made clear. And the mystery of Christ refers to how God's Old Testament promises of salvation have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The point is, the mystery of Christ is no longer mysterious. The mystery of salvation has been made clear in Christ. And so when Paul proclaims that message, he doesn't want to make it sound mysterious or obscure. He wants it to be crystal clear when he talks about it. And it should be a great encouragement to you and me to hear the Apostle Paul asking for prayer that God would help him be understandable. That puts us all on a level playing field. You and I need God's help if we are to speak clearly. I think we realize that. And Paul too with all his great gifting, realized that he also needed God's help. No one can speak clearly without help from God when it comes to these important things about Christ. And the bigger point here is that the main focus of our prayers is to be the good news of Jesus. Asking God to open doors for that good news and enable clear presentation of the good news. And implied in both of those is a response to the gospel. We pray for open doors and we pray for clear presentation because our ultimate prayer is for the spread of the gospel. We pray that it will find a resting place in people's hearts and transform them. We pray that it will produce lasting change and fruitfulness and perseverance. Later on, Paul will say that Epaphras is praying the Colossians will stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. That is a gospel prayer as well. A prayer for maturity and perseverance in Christ. So, verse 2 calls us to a life of prayer, calls us to go to town with prayer, pray about everything, don't hold back. And verses 3 and 4 give us a main emphasis for prayer, the message of Christ. Pray about everything and pray mainly about the spread and fruitfulness of the gospel. This applies to the times where we gather together for prayer as well. Paul surely has those times in mind. He's writing these words to the whole fellowship in Colossae. He takes it for granted they will pray together. That's what the church does. There are really not many things the New Testament tells us to do together as a body of believers. But one of those things is to pray together. Is that something you personally have woken up to? Is that something that is on your radar? That one of the main ministries of the church is gathered prayer? The strength and unity and effectiveness of a local church 
rests largely on its devotion to prayer together. A church that doesn't gather to pray is either a disinterested church or a church that feels self-sufficient, doesn't need to pray. But to the degree that we sense the priority of the gospel, to the degree that we sense our own great weakness, to that degree, we will devote ourselves to gathering together for prayer. Asking God to open doors for the gospel and to bring lasting gospel fruit. And to minister the gospel through his weak, weak servants. Weak servants like us. Weak servants like those who work in the 10 different ministries we support as a church in various parts of the world. Earlier, I encouraged you to commit to conversational prayer this year. Well, how about adding a second commitment, gathering with the rest of the church to pray this year. Three times a month, we have time set aside just to pray together. There's the early service on the second Sunday of the month. And there's the first and third Thursday evenings of the month. Why not commit this year to make one or two or all three of those a part of your monthly routine? As a church, we are enthusiastic about gathering to hear God's word together. Let's develop an equal enthusiasm for gathering to talk to God together. There has already been noticeable growth in that, and I encourage you to join in if you haven't already. And those of you who feel tentative about praying alongside others, I'm sure in many ways that refers to all of us, but those of you who feel you have to hold back when you're with others, This year, ask God to help you with that. Like we said earlier, no special language is needed. No set length is required when you pray. What's needed and required is simply heartfelt prayer to our Father. This year, as individuals and as a church, we need to talk persistently to God. And we need to talk carefully to outsiders with boldness and sensitivity. Look at verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In these verses, Paul is saying, the things I've just asked you to pray for me are things that you also need. Paul says, I'm a servant of God who wants to use his opportunities well, and that's what you are too. The majority of this letter has been about how Christians are to treat one another. And the final verses will show us more about that. Paul knows very well Christians don't spend all their lives with other Christians. They have regular contact with outsiders. That's a reference to non-Christians. 
And if you are not a Christian, you might think that sounds a bit cold. Is that how we think of you? As an outsider? Well, the reality is we want you to feel very welcome. We are delighted you're here. But until you come to Jesus for forgiveness and new life, you are an outsider to God's family. And no warm welcome from us can change that, no matter how warm it is. And in fact, the more clearly the good news of Jesus is presented, the more you will probably feel like an outsider. Until the day you come to him and put your trust in him and enter into the benefits of what he has done for you. You see, those who are insiders in the church are not those who think they're superior. Insiders are those who realize they are lost without Jesus. Insiders are those who depend on Jesus. The church is not a club for people who think they're a cut above the rest. The church is a shelter for those who admit they need Jesus. That is the requirement for being an insider. And you are welcome to be an insider too. But here, of course, Paul is not addressing outsiders directly. He is calling Christians to be careful how they act and talk to outsiders. We're to do it wisely, he says in verse 5. And the assumption behind that is that we actually give thought to how we are around those outside the church. We're to consider what is being conveyed by our words and our actions day to day with our family, with our colleagues at work. Do we come across to them as smug and superior? Or on the other hand, do we come across as no different at all to those who are outsiders to Christ? Wisdom will lead us away from either of those ways of being. Wisdom will lead us to be attractively different. Not just the same as others, but not aloof from others either. We will be attractively different. And of course, being that way doesn't mean everyone around us will fall on their knees and want to become a Christian. The New Testament tells us very clearly that will not be the case. Some may come to Christ. Some may develop a hatred for us just because we're different. That will make them angry. But whatever response we get, we must be aware of our words and our actions. We must seek to be wise about them. As Christians, we do not have the luxury of living lives that are indistinguishable from the rest of the world. We are to be attractively different. And verse 5 says, we must aim to make the most of every opportunity. 
meaning every opportunity to speak about the hope we have in Jesus. Again, as we saw earlier with Paul, Paul could start proclaiming the message at any time in any place. But Paul asked the Colossians to pray for open doors for his message. Situations where the people in front of him were ready to hear and receive the message. And that's what Paul's talking about here too. Times when there is an opportunity to talk about Jesus. We don't have to force it unnaturally. We don't have to try and crowbar it into the conversation. There's a natural opportunity. Paul says, when those opportunities come, make the most of them. How do we do that? Well, I think he's giving us the answer in verse 6. Look at that again. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That certainly applies to all our conversation all the time. But in this context, Paul is talking specifically about gospel conversations. And what he says is very helpful because we all have different personalities. Very different personalities. Some of us, when we sense an opportunity to speak about Jesus, will go at it like a runaway train. We'll be unstoppable. We will take the conversation right to the end of the line, whether the other person is with us or not. Others of us, when we have an opportunity, we will hold back and we'll beat around the bush so much, we'll be so tentative and so apologetic about it all, we won't get around to saying anything significant about Jesus. But here, Paul is calling us to a third way the way of tactful boldness. We will be bold enough to take the opportunity and be clear about Jesus and why we need Jesus. And at the same time, we will be tactful. We'll be sensitive. We will speak graciously, not harshly. And not crudely either. By calling us to let our conversation be seasoned with salt, Paul, at the very least, means we won't swear merrily along with everyone else in our family or at our work. And positively, being seasoned with salt means that our words will be wholesome. They will give the conversation a good flavor, the way salt flavors a meal. And very importantly, when we have opportunities to talk about Jesus, we will realize we are talking to a real person, a unique individual, not just a statue, not just a target for a message. We're talking to a real person. And that will cause us to consider what might be going on behind their questions about Jesus or their statements about spirituality or whatever it is they're talking about. Because they're a real person with real interests and worries and pressures, we will take that into account as we think about how best to answer them. So if, for example, 
They ask us about the Bible's teaching on sexual relationships. Or maybe speak negatively about what the Bible says about sexual relationships. If that's what they do, we will consider what might be going on in their life that would prompt them to say those kind of things or ask those kind of questions. Are they involved in a sexual relationship and they're beginning to realize they might have to give that up if they follow Jesus? They might be counting the cost of following Jesus. That might be behind the prickly things they say about Jesus or the questions they ask about him. Being thoughtful about that will help us to answer boldly and tactfully. It will help our answer to be both full of truth and full of grace. We need to talk carefully to outsiders. And finally, we need to talk affectionately to each other with interest in the big and the little things. When we read these final verses earlier, you'll have noticed they are actually a series of greetings and commendations of various people. So Paul isn't actually teaching in these verses not directly anyway. But what this final section does is it gives a great insight into the way relationships worked in the New Testament church and how they are to work in the church today. One thing that is noticeable here is the warmth and affection that comes across. In verse 7, Tychicus is a dear brother. Down in verse 9, Onesimus is also a dear brother. In verse 14, Luke is our dear friend. Some of these people are known to us from elsewhere in the New Testament. Luke was almost certainly the author of Luke and Acts in the New Testament. Onesimus was a slave. He was the main reason Paul wrote his New Testament letter to Philemon. Just as a little plug here for next Sunday morning, Kevin will be speaking next week on the letter to Philemon, so you can find out more about Onesimus' story then. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is mentioned in verse 10. Mark was a young man who had previously bailed out on Paul during a ministry trip. Mark had abandoned the mission. The book of Acts tells us about that in Acts chapter 15. And as a result of that bailout by Mark, Paul had a legitimate grievance against him. Mark had done wrong to Paul. Earlier in this letter, Paul said that would happen between Christians sometimes. And Paul called us to forgive in those situations. And here, verse 10 shows us Paul himself has done that with Mark. He gives Mark a commendation to the church in Colossae. Those words about Mark show the affection we find in this final section of the letter. It's not a syrupy, sweet, too good to be true kind of affection. No, this is affection that has gone through the pain of real grievances and real hurt 
and real forgiveness. This is love that has been tested and has persevered. Another thing that's noticeable in these verses is how often Paul mentions the circumstances he hasn't mentioned in the letter. Verses 7 to 9 are about Tychicus and Onesimus bringing the letter to Colossae. And three times, Paul says these brothers will tell the church about what is going on with him. Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. In verse 8, I'm sending him that you may know about our circumstances. And in verse 9, he and Onesimus will tell you everything that is happening here. The point is, this letter has dealt with urgent matters of truth. Paul wrote this letter knowing the Colossians are in danger of being taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. But Paul's relationship with these people is about the little things as well, the little details of life. These details haven't made it into the letter but they do matter. When people love each other, they care about the little details. And in our relationships, of course, we gather here around the truths of Scripture. We want to talk about those truths together. That's what Paul calls the Colossians to do. If you look down to verse 16, you'll see they are to gather together to listen to this letter being read. And then to hear another letter, Paul sent the church in nearby Laodicea. The church gathers to talk and think about the big things, the truths that we take our stand on. And also these final verses show us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, our affection for one another will lead us to take a genuine interest in the little details of each other's lives. All the news. And not in a gossipy way where we share details about each other behind each other's backs. No, in a face-to-face way. As we care about each other's daily circumstances. We care about those details so we can comfort and encourage one another. In verse 8, Paul says, Tychicus is coming to encourage their hearts. In verse 11, he says, his co-workers have proved a comfort to him. And down in verse 17, Paul gives Archippus a public encouragement. He says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. We don't know what that ministry was. But presumably, Paul knows Archippus needs the church to support him in his ministry. And so Paul gives his encouragement in a way that the whole church will hear it. To make sure they encourage this man. And what comes out of all of this is the sense These Christians are not just acquaintances who have a common cause. These are people who love one another. They are family. And they show it in their conversation. They talk affectionately to each other. 
with interest in the big and the little things. They know what's going on in each other's lives. They're interested in each other. And so they communicate. Not only about the big truths that unite them, they communicate about the daily circumstances in each other's lives. And that leads to real involvement. Look at verse 12. Paul speaks about Epaphras. He says, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for the Colossians. We mentioned that earlier. Verse 12 shows our affection for one another causes us to bring each other to God in prayer. And not just with a superficial God bless him or God bless her. The language Paul uses is strong. Our affection for one another causes us to wrestle for one another in prayer. If we're going to do that, we need to know what is happening with one another. We need to talk. We need to talk persistently to God. We need to talk carefully to outsiders. And we need to talk affectionately to each other. And for all of this, we need the help and power of our God. Don't we? We need his grace. And that is Paul's final word in this letter. The end of verse 18, grace be with you. And God's grace is with us because of Jesus. True spirituality is not a life of exploring different fixes until we find one that takes our fancy. True spirituality is about recognizing Jesus Christ as the only source of eternal salvation, true wisdom, freedom from the chains of sin, and the grace of God. A life of true spirituality is a life lived in the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we rest in your amazing grace. We rejoice in the truth that because of Jesus, your grace is with us. We're not seeking to please a harsh master by piling up good deeds, hoping that someday we'll have done enough. We thank you that Jesus' work was enough. We thank you that we're not trying to connect with the divine through some technique or some mystical experience. We thank you that we are reconciled to you through Jesus' death on the cross. We have access to you minute by minute in simple words of prayer. And we thank you that as we seek to live a new life in Christ, you are with us. Your grace comes to us daily. It is new every morning in our lives. And so as we move into this new year, will you keep us dependent on your grace? 
Help us be devoted to prayer. Help us be ready for opportunities to speak about our Savior. Help us to be full of affection for one another. Amen. Our next song is a reminder to ourselves and to each other that we live the Christian life through the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.
Grace be with you. Amen.